everyone. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor or memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Welcome back to Matan's 101 podcast. Today's episode is dedicated in memory of Ahuva Volovsky, my husband's grandmother, who passed away just a few hours before recording this episode. My tefillah, my prayer, is that this episode brings comfort to all of those mourning. Each week we spend 30 minutes speaking about a seminal figure or idea on that week's Parsha. Parshat Korach opens with the rebellion of Korach and his partners and is followed by vignettes of repair and of further breakdown. The fire pans, the machtot of the rebels, are formed into a covering for the altar to remind the people not to overstep ritual boundaries. The people then respond to Korach's episode by complaining and are met with a fierce divine plague that kills 14,000. This is followed by another complaint, this time framed constructively by the people regarding their fear of collective punishment. God then clarifies that the burden of boundary violations in the tabernacle will be the responsibility of the tribe of Levi, and the entire camp will not suffer. The Parsha ends with the laws of tithes, trumot, and masrot. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Erica Brown, a returning podcast guest, and please make sure to check out that earlier episode on the Women Writing Torah series. Dr. Erica Brown is the Vice Provost at Yeshiva University of Values and Leadership and serves as the Director of its Rabbi Laura Jonathan Sachs Herrenstein Center for Values and Leadership. Erica, it's a pleasure to have you here today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So of our vast array of characters that we have in this week's Parsha, uh, who would you like to speak about today? So I, I thought a lot about this, Yusefa. You know, there's Moshe and Aaron's response to Korach's challenge. There's Korach himself. We don't have much information on, on him. We can only understand who he is by virtue of what he says and what he does. Then we, of course, have Datan and Aviram. Um, but when I was looking at the character who maybe most speaks to me in this uh, Parsha, it's actually the wilderness itself. In other words, the landscape behaves in a very unusual way. Um, in my own study of Bamidbar, I think that the landscape is the persistent sort of force that pushes B'nai Israel back as they're trying to advance forward. And so that's, I, I really want to focus on on character as on landscape as character, if you will, um, it's a little bit of a different take. So, if you're prepared to do something a little bit different with me today, uh, that's that's where I'd like to go. I'm I'm with you. I'm jumping right in. Okay, awesome. So, um, I want to just read the read the way the landscape behaves, and then maybe we'll tie it into some larger themes in the book of Bamidbar. Um, so when you know, there's this sort of absurd contest um, that Moshe uh, that Moshe implores Hakadosh Baruch Hu to, to 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 do something in this situation where Moshe's Moshe and Aaron's leadership is challenged, and the idea is we're going to have some competition, and we're going to take these uh, we're going to take these uh, you know fire shovels, if you like, these fire pans, and we're going to see you know who. Who comes out? Uh, who comes out strongest? And then, as as this context is coming to its end, 
um, the the idea is that the earth is going to, the earth swallows everyone. Um, you know, you try to explain this Parsha to a child, and it's very, very scary, the idea that you can do something wrong, and then the earth swallows you. So I just wanted to read that uh, with everyone. Uh, we're in Bamidbar Tetzayan. Pasuk Lamed, Im Bria Yavria Hashem, Ufatsta Dama et Bia Uvala Ota. What's going to happen is uh, God is going to, this, this new thing is going to happen. The, 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 the earth is going to open up its mouth, right? And you imagine that image of the earth swallowing. All of a sudden, the, 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 the earth itself has become personified. That's why I think of it as a character. The earth opens its mouth. And swallows, uh, and swallows people. But and everything that they have, right? And the earth, in a way, is going to declare who the winner is because once these these individuals have been swallowed, then people will know that they ridiculed God's choice. And I think Moshe did something very, very clever in putting the onus on God. It was instead of Moshe sort of trying to defend his the choice of him and Aaron as leaders, he basically says, I didn't make this, this choice. In fact, if anything, I didn't want this. I, I asked repeatedly not to have this. So when Moshe falls on his face, he prostrates himself before uh, this company, before Korach and 250 people, um, he's he's asking God to take up that space. He bows, and then um, and then this this contest, this competition is created. And if you lose the competition, you pretty much lose everything. So what strikes me in this parsha is that Moshe says to Korach, you know, you you already have a position of leadership. Right. Korach had a position as a Kohen. He had a position of leadership. He's going to sacrifice that by having nothing. Right. By having nothing. And all of that, the arbiter of all of this is going to be the land itself. Right. That after Moshe spoke all of these words, then the ground just split. And exactly as Moshe said is what the land did. And not only did it swallow them, but here's a detail that we don't think about. So if you thought, well, we got rid of the people, but everything else about them still stands, um, everything actually was demolished. Everything was, um, everything was swallowed. Um, and I'm really, I, I, it's one of those images when my children were young and they came home with Parsha sheets, it was always people sort of falling into sort of like the Grand Canyon, if you yes. like it. They're just <laughs> all, all dropping. And that's, that's terrifying enough. But this actually gives you an impression. It's almost like a sort of tsunami that swallows the houses, that swallows everything that owned it as if you're instantly erased. And um, maybe that's the ultimate price you pay for challenging God's leadership is that you yourself and everything about you gets erased. So your family can't benefit from that house, even if your family is still there. Um, 
I think that's really scary. And and if you look at the as as the text continues, right, all that they had went down alive into the grave. So the the earth becomes a grave. Uh, the land uh, and and the relationship of human beings to land is as old as as Bereshit Aleph, right? We're taken from land. Uh, well, Bereshit Bet actually, where we're taken from the dust of the land. Um, we're created with the land. We have a relationship with the land, which is initially positive. Then our relationship with the land becomes negative. Uh, when um, when we disobey, we eat from we eat from a tree we're not supposed to eat from. And then Hashem says, Adam, you're not going to have a relationship where the land is going to give you all that's yield. Now you're going to have to work hard and you're going to have to sweat. And that curse of the land gets increasingly, it gets increasingly more harsh as humanity develops to the point where the land will swallow us up in the story of Noah. And the word Aretz appears, I can't remember how many dozen times in that Parsha and Parsha Noah, that the land and humans who are supposed to have this loving relationship with the earth now has an adversarial relationship with the earth. Later on in the Parsha, when for the second time the people come and voice a complaint, although it's spoken much better, and their big objection to is is the concept of collective punishment, uh, and they come and they complain that it really is something that is scary. And I'm speaking here; it's in it's in the uh, the end of Parakid Zayin. Uh, and they come and they say, you know, we're all, you know, we, if we if we keep making these mistakes, eventually we're all just going to die. Um, and then it seems like God comes up with a new plan, and it's a question whether it's a new plan or the plan all along. But this is where it's said or restated. But He says, when it comes to sins regarding overstepping your religious boundaries, it, the burden's going to fall on the tribe of Levi. It's not going to. It's not going to kill all of you again. And I don't have any answers, or, or I'm not even sure exactly where I want to take this. But it, it sort of harkens back to this collective punishment of Korach's family, and life in the wilderness is extremely harsh. And so when a punishment is going to come, it's going to be delivered ext- very, very harshly. And I will say that in the broader movement of Tanakh, we move away from the world of collective punishment. We move away to a world of individual accountability, but this Parsha really throws you deep into that world of collective punishment and you feel how harsh it is, right? You're saying it's not just falling into a hole and sort of having a party underground like it looked in those Parsha pictures, but it's, it's just an utter Again, it's utter swallowing, and it's and it's people who weren't necessarily guilty in in this episode. So, this idea of collective punishment sort of hovers over us in in a number of ways and a number of echoes in, in this parsha. Yeah, I mean, I I think I think this parsha is theologically extremely challenging. Yeah. Um, and 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 I think in some way it's easier to avoid altogether, which is exactly why I wanted to talk about it. Um, because I think you can't you can't avoid it. Uh, you mentioned the end of Yud Zion, but right before Yud Zion, at the end of Tet Zion, um, it says, Yisrael asher Nasu 
In other words, the people around, uh, they were the people were watching. I mean, what's what's going on? What's the view from the stadium? And as everybody watches the earth swallow uh, people, um, the, the, all of Israel s- starts screaming. Right? They raise their voices. What if the world? What if the earth swallows us also? Now, what I'd like to suggest is that this goes back much, much earlier. Um, this notion of the earth swallowing, um, swallowing people and acting as a character. So I'm going to take us all the way back to Sefer Shmot, Yudalid, Pasuk Gimel, where Pharaoh allows B'nai Israel, he allows the Israelites to go into the wilderness because he says they'll go astray in the land and the wilderness has closed in on them. He understands that the wilderness um, will have this. I don't have to I don't have to pursue them. The wilderness itself will do its pursuit. Now, the irony, of course, there is that Pharaoh suffers as a result of that. It was the earth swallows him up, or you could say the water, but in effect, it's the same. It's the forces of nature swallow up Pharaoh. Um, but uh, but he and, and in fact, we could go back earlier from fourteen to thirteen. 17 and 18 in that same, uh, in that same, in, in Sefer Shemot, the people may have a change of heart when they see war and return to Egypt. So Kaddish Baruch Hu will lead the people round about by way of the wilderness. I'm going to confuse, use the landscape to confuse them. They're not actually going to be able to move forward because they'll have to move in the direction. They'll be so surprised. They'll be so trapped by this wilderness that they'll have to follow a leader. They can't just go at it on their own and try to go back to Egypt. It's just not going to work. And the images in the Midbar we have pretty much everywhere. Um, the Midbar is the place of chaos, and it's a place of uncertainty, and it bewilders, and it swallows. And it's also a place of primitive love, right? It was, I'm, I'm alone with God. We're alone with God. So, we read in Yirmiyahu, pursue me in the wilderness. That is where we will live together unencumbered by normal life. And we certainly know that there are religious movements that existed, uh, uh, monasteries and, um, pl- and, and, and tribes that lived uh, and continue to live in desolate places as a, as a way of letting go of the rest of the world. Now, as it happens, Bamidbar is problematic on a lot of levels um, because we have actually no recorded births in the book of Bamidbar. Um, that's a, a, a fact that the scholar Robert Cohn noted, that there's not one single birth recorded in this entire book. And um, I wanted to read something that um, Adrian Levine wrote about this. Uh, while numbers, he calls the book of Bamidbar numbers, while numbers narrates the variety of ways in which people die, it only records the burial of members of the generation once with extreme brevity, and that's in Perak Yud Aleph. The le- lack of specificity when it comes to the people's location at the end of their lives is especially startling when contrasted to the introduction of that very same generation at the opening of numbers. We begin, say for Bamidbar, and we have lots of names. But as the book continues and we have the earth swallowing people up and we have wars and we have magefot, we have plagues, all these people die and we know nothing about them. Those who were so meticulously accounted for, she writes, each tribe named, numbered and assigned a specific placement around the tabernacle in the camp, they're now left in their deaths, unburied, unmarked, somewhere in the wilderness. So even so, so death in some way um, is, is unmarked. And that's true for Miriam, right? We know that when Miriam dies, we have no idea where she dies. There's something about being 
not being born in the Midbar and just dying in the Midbar. The earth swallows you and erases you. So Korach, if you like, is the most extreme example. But Pharaoh understands, Paro understands that this is going to be the fate of the of people in the wilderness. So what you're essentially saying is that Korach is sort of a microcosm for what happens to everybody in this generation, if I understand you correctly. Not quite everybody. Um, I think the midbar affects everybody. I think the landscape becomes the source of our complaints, of our thirst, of our hunger, of our sense that this will never end. And we can't always see gula, we can't always see a redemptive root. Um, I think, though, that um, that it intensifies and amplifies with certain populations, particularly seditious, rebellious populations, who who get the full force of that of that swallowing, as we see in this um, in this story. I, I mean, for people who want notoriety, as Korach did, right? Korach wanted a name. He wanted to have the name. He wanted Moshe's leadership. He wanted to, he challenged Moshe's leadership. Kulan of Kadoshim, we're all holy, as if to suggest. And maybe I'm the ho- holiest of all. And why can't I have this position? The ultimate punishment, Yosefa, for someone who wants notoriety is to disappear and have into everything oblivion. about you disappear into oblivion. Mm-hmm. If I go back to that point about the wilderness being this incredibly harsh place where if you're successful, you can get through it, but many people are not going to get through it. Sort of thinking about it on a theological level, what that what that means or what that creates or what movement about that is necessary for our formation as a people. To go into a land together, to create a society together is an obvious goal. And so what would be the goal of this incredibly harsh reality, which of course was supposed to last much shorter than it did, but even so, even if it was supposed to be short, what what's the purpose of, the, of this kind of, of reality? Yes, yeah, so the way I understand that is just travel with me, if you like, for a few minutes to look at the book of Bamidbar as a whole, which is, I think Bamidbar is one of my, my favorite books because I think it's, it's a really difficult book to understand and everything breaks down. So if you're interested in leadership, it's fascinating because leadership is most required in, in climates of greatest uncertainty. Um, you know, Karl Popper, the philosopher of science, makes a distinction between clock problems and cloud problems. Right? So clock problems, a clock is relatively easy. You take it apart. It works in a mechanical way. It's very technical. If you have a problem with a clock, you, you, you know, you, you could figure it out. But a cloud problem, and, I, I, you know, it's, it's intriguing because we've got the Anane Kavod that accompany us, the clouds of glory that accompany us in the wilderness. A cloud problem is dependent on different aspects of weather and it's complicated and you can you know you put your hands on it and your hand goes through it those is you can't grasp it it's something that uh, some people call them swamp problems in leadership so we enter the midbar and for the first 10 prakim the first 10 chapters we we're highly organized camp right we know we have a census that begins um we have we have um, digalim, we have flags, we know who our army is, those who are the, it, between the ages of 20 and 60. We know where the Mishkan, the tabernacle, rests in the middle of the camp. We understand who carries that tabernacle when it moves and where everyone is situated. Now, what happens in, from the beginning, those first 10 chapters, to the absolute breakdown of everything from chapter, uh, I w- I'm going to argue about midpoint and 10, everything 
everything dissipates, everything collapses. And it begins, ironically, um, begins with Moshe's insecurity, and we'll talk about that in a second. Then Miriam and Aaron speak, that's in chapter 10 and 11. Then Miriam and Aaron speak badly about Moshe. It's no wonder that you get to a point where 250 leaders accompany Korach, because that all began internally with this small group, with Moshe himself, not sure that he could handle all of the all of the contention, all of the strife of the Midbar, and it mounts, and finally it affects everyone. So, it, it, in other words, you're going from Moshe, then Miriam and Aaron. Uh, that you've got the uh, you've got the the twelve representatives of the Shvatim of the tribes who go to reconnoiter the land. It was it's like you're working outward to greater and greater a greater and greater population of seditiousness. And I think when you um, when you say, well, what what happened? You know, what broke down? We were all so orderly. Well, I think what happened is we started moving. And you can you can create a really ordered universe, but as you move ahead in that universe, um, you realize that it is pushing back at you the entire time. It is challenging you the whole time. There's no escape from the challenge of the Midbar ever. It is there. It is persistent. And in some way, it becomes to me the great metaphor for leadership, because in leadership, you're always negotiating uncertainty. And sometimes that uncertainty is persistent and it's and it's everywhere. I I, want to use an example. If you if you don't mind, Um, it's it's one of the best examples I can I can bring, I think, in literature that has helped me understand the role of um, the role of the midbar and why it was so difficult. And then to get to your larger question of well, what do we learn from this? I mean, how, how do we make sense of this? So this is from a novel by Amitav Ghosh uh, that I read many years ago called The Glass Palace. And it's about um, rubber tree plantations that were planted by the British in Burma before the Second World War. And one of the central characters uh, talks about, you know, wow, look at these, look at these orchards. Look at this. Look at these, all these farms that you've created here in Burma. And this is what one of the owners says. He says, this is my little empire. I made it. I took it from the jungle and I molded it into what I wanted it to be. Now that it's mine, I take good care of it. There's law, there's order, everything is well run. Looking at it, you'd think that everything here is tame, domesticated, that all the parts have been fitted carefully together. But it's when you try to make the whole machine work that you discover that every bit of it is fighting back. It has nothing to do with me or with rights or with wrongs, I could make this the best run little kingdom in the world and it would still fight back. It's nature, the nature that made these trees and the nature that made us. So there's a description of entropy, of nature fighting back. And you have a garden, you think this garden looks wonderful, but it requires constant vigilance because there's weeds and there's growth and there are problems with the temperature and there's insects and there's diseases. So if you imagine as we're moving forward, um, everything is pushing us back. And um, and it gets and it gets to people, and they say, "Just we can't do this anymore." And I think um, what's remarkable isn't how many people die, but it's how many people survive and go through this crucible. And maybe maybe you can't actually ever be worthy of a promised land until you can work in an unpromised land, until you can work through the uncertainty uh, and, and say. I've gotten all of Egypt out of me, which is someone else's land. I need to get to my land. Um, and and that's going to take a lot of internal and external navigation. So that sort of collection of unbelievable descriptions brought up two thoughts uh, on my end. One is that the difference between a family photo 
and a family's actual life, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is, you know, you have, my husband and I have a rule of thumb, which is that no matter how bad the trip was, you take a great picture, okay? <laughs> um, but if the family photo is that, is that census, it's the descriptions in the beginning, it's that static representation. And then of course there's a daily life, which is far messier. And you just largely hope people remember most of the good stuff. But that sort of was the image that comes up. And of course, I think it's a powerful image because Am Yisrael ultimately is a family system. They're, they're a national system really, but at their heart, they're a family system. And the second thing that came up for me is that if I understand you correctly, you're saying that the wilderness, while ultimately we want to get to the promised land, the wilderness and the journey that we take to get through there ultimately will represent the journey that we always are on as a nation. And the parts are always moving. There's really never almost anything that is going to be static. And so we can have those ideals or those, again, the census, the depiction, the geography, the layout, but ultimately we're constantly a group of people with a tremendous amount of moving parts that we're trying to keep some semblance of order to, but that we're always going to be, we're always going to have these different parts, factions that are going to be pulling things apart at certain times more than they're pulling them together. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think as a metaphor, you're always leading in the wilderness, right? You're always, that's why I named my book Lead, Leadership in the Wilderness. You're, we're always leading the wilderness. I think we've gone through an experience globally right now that has just showed us whatever control you thought you could exert over your surroundings was a delusion, right? It was ultimately, um, we're not in control. And sometimes we are really out of control. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't do the human thing and organize, right? When God yeah. creates us out of dust, you're working, you're vigilant, you've got to build it. Um, and at the same time, there's there's an approach that you have to have theologically to uncertainty, um, to relinquish human control as much as you exert human control, because you will never be able to control certain things. And the midbar is one of those things that you that you can't, that you can't control, but it also makes you. And here, you know, here's the thing that I think people don't realize. We're, the Midbar is a book of transition. And so much of our lives are really spent in the transitional period between places. And, um, and that's why, you know, like the 40 years becomes to me, you know, the great allegory of life is, is not the room that you land in. It's all, it's the prose door. It's the hallways. Um, it's the uncertainty of what's on the other side of the door. You can create the fantasy of what's on the other side of the door, but it, it, what you're really spending a lot of time in is 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 the is the steps is the, it's the it's the walking in it's the walking and negotiating the uncertainty. Um, Bruce Fowler wrote a book called Life Is in the Transitions. Yeah. He's a wonderful storyteller, and he says that people go through in in the interviews that he did with I think 250 people he and his research team that people go through about five what he calls life quakes over a lifetime things that really fundamentally question your assumptions about the world. And they may be good things, filled with joy, meeting your meeting your partner, falling in love with your job, and it's seeing it as a calling. They can be terrible things like sickness and loss and death and um, retirement for many people. Right? They're life quakes. And, and sometimes they're not the things that you expect them to be. Um, but the, it, he says that today we go through transitional periods every 18 to 36 months. Right. So that's a lot. That's a lot of movement. How resilient are we? What kind of capacity do we have 
to negotiate that transition. And I think the book of Bamidbar tells you, you know, sometimes there's no births and sometimes there's no deaths, right? Or no recorded deaths. Sometimes it's just you're in the limbo space of life. And you have to figure out how you're going to do that because that's the hardest space of all to be in. Um, there's no guidebook there. There's no map. Right. It's 38 years in the tunnel without seeing anything at the end, basically. It's, it's that yeah. space. Yeah. And that's hard. You know, as you want to have a happy ending. Sano was a parent. We did have a happy ending, but we had a lot of loss in order to get there. I think Korach is in some way the centerpiece of the earth swallowing humanity, swallowing this troop, and to show like it, it can get this bad. It can get really this bad. But as, as we wind down in the book of Bamidbar, um, we take a little tour, if you like, of the various locations where we've been. Right? We've been in this city and this city and the other city as the text illuminates our travel blog, right? Uh, you know, or I should say our travel log. We know where, we don't know where we're going, but we know where we've been. And each of those cities, in each of those cities, something momentous happened. And I think that is representative, if you will, of traveling through life, where different places and place mm -hmm. names sort of trigger all kinds of emotions. And we're inviting us on a, on a collective journey. You know, we talked about collective punishment, but there's also the collective accomplishment and achievement of look where we've traveled. Look how far we've traveled. We've been here and we've been there. And some places have brought horrible memories and some have brought really comforting um, a comforting sense of solace and excitement about the path to come. And I think that's that along with the collective punishment in the book is the is the collective sense of achievement of where we've where we've gone, where we've come to from where we've gone. Thank you so much for this conversation. There is just sort of this amazing collection of images. I, I love images. I love thinking in images that are going to stay with me. And I'm sure many of our listeners after listening to this. So really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for traveling with me today. It's been a gift. Please make sure to check out the Matan website or call our office to hear more details about Matan Summer Program. This year's topic is the Jewish emotional experience with all of your heart and soul. The program dates begin July 3rd to the 21st. You can check out again our website or speak to the office to hear more details for this enriching, wonderful summer experience. We will get to meet many of the Matan staff, including myself. We look forward to seeing you there. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One -on -One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do One-on-One -on -one and Women's Torah Learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.